Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Trust Decay, Rebuilding Intergenerational Trust in a Technocratic Age. Please welcome the President of the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Thanks so much. You're in for a real treat, knowing our moderator well, and the panelists, what they have done in their careers, what they've written about, how they go about their lives, I think a lot of times people who sit in this theater or tune in online expect us to only talk about very specific policy and how we get from the current state of affairs, which you know is okay in terms of policy, to a much better state of affairs in terms of policy. And we forget, especially those of us who are here in the nation's capital, that there's this world outside Washington, D.C. And it's a world that Yuval Levin, Christine Rosen, Father Bryce Sibley, Dr. Jay Richards, of course, know well because they would identify as Americans before they would identify as someone who is, even though some of them live here in D.C., being focused on the nation's capital. That's the very point, that for those of us who believe that good policy work and good politics starts with the polity itself, that is to say the American people, we need to be thinking about cultural and social issues that are upstream from how policy and politics are done in the nation's capital and in state capitals. So today, while not out of character for the Heritage Foundation, is a panel that is designed to get us thinking about that, especially as so much news commentary is about Supreme Court decisions, praise God, as well as midterm elections. I won't say praise God about that. We'll see what happens in January. But all of that to say, it is a distinct pleasure to introduce my friend, my colleague, the director of our DeVos Center, Dr. Jay Richards, who will be moderating today's conversation. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And so there's a funny story I have to tell you. You're wondering, why is he bringing a laptop up here? So uh, I realize with uh, the, our panel, all of us have written and thought a lot about the role of technology. Uh, and I realized I, that the first thought when we put this panel together is I looked at it and I said, oh no, we don't want a panel where four Gen Xers get together and complain about millennials and Gen Zers. So we're not going to do that, I promise. But the reality is that if you're in, in academia, if you're in the policy world, you tend to think of ideas as the things that move the world. And certainly they're absolutely crucial. But we often give short shrift to the role of our technology, to the ways in which the different ways in which we interact and our use technology to mediate our relationships actually can change our culture and our cultural attitudes. And so we're going to focus a lot on that. Um, and as all of us know, technology, what it gives, it takes away. And so the Heritage Foundation Wi-Fi went down this morning, and it was so catastrophic that I literally could not print my notes. And so um, we couldn't even do it at business services. And so. Uh, what technology takes away, it gives. And so I'm actually uh, saved by my laptop. So let me introduce uh, uh, our panelists. But uh, what I, wa I want you to, sort of a key point I want you to, uh, to get from this is to consider the ways in which the rapid transformative power 
of networking technology of platforms and social media uh, companies, smartphones, uh, actually affect us culturally, psychologically, morally, and spiritually. Because that's something that, unless you really think about it, you're, you're likely not to consider. So uh, let me introduce our panelists very quickly. Yuval Levin is the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American en Enterprise Institute, friendly uh, organization nearby, where he also holds the Beth and Ravenel Curry Chair in Public Policy. He's the founder and editor of National Affairs, and he's also a senior editor at The New Atlantis, a contributing editor at National Review, and a contributing opinion writer at The New York Times. His most recent book is called A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. And I highly recommend it. I actually read it over the weekend. Second panelist is Christine Rosen, who is a senior editor at The New Atlantis, where she writes about social and cultural impact of technology, as well as bioethics and the history of genetics. And in fact, she has a very important and interesting book on the eugenics movement. She's a senior writer, writer at Commentary Magazine and the chair of the Colloquy on Knowledge, Technology, and Culture at the Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Virginia. She's a former Future Tense Fellow at the New America Foundation and was for many years a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy a center and an adjunct scholar at AEI. She's been widely published in leading periodicals, and she has a forthcoming book called The Extinction of Experience, which explores the many ways our engagement with technology has transformed our behavior and our understanding of what it means to be human. Our third panelist is Father Bryce Sibley, who is a priest of the Diocese of Lafayette, Louisiana. He studied at the Pontifical North American College in Rome, the NAC, and was ordained to the priesthood in 2000. In 2001, he received his licentiate degree from the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family in Rome. And if you're not Catholic and don't know what that is, or if you are Catholic and don't know what that is, that sort of empowers him to be able to teach uh, theology officially in seminaries. After several pastoral assignments in 2010, he was appointed as pastor and chaplain at Our Lady of Wisdom Church and Catholic Student Center on the campus of the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, where he served for 11 years. He now serves as Associate Professor of Moral Theology and Spiritual Director at Notre Dame Seminary. Over the years, he's traveled extensively giving retreats, talks, and workshops, and has reflected deeply on these issues. Please join me in welcoming our panel. So this is really symbolically significant, right, that I'm having to use this laptop because it's a visual reminder of the way in which our technology mediates our relationships. Um, so I joked about this, this uh, dilemma of a bunch of Gen Xers. I th I'm guessing we're all Gen Xers, just, you know, I figured that was probably right. Um, getting together and talking about the kids these days, right? What, what their problems are, and that's really not what this is it's about. It's not a dilemma, it's no. a way of life. Right? No, it's a way of, it's a reality. <laughs> I don't know, it's, half my career has been just sort of complaining about this. People don't know, Socrates actually worried about the invention of writing because it messed up uh, memory, right? And in fact, this is probably true that in oral cultures, people have better memories than in places that are literate. So the point is, is that every technology is going to have costs and benefits, and I presume every generation has had conversations about kids these days, but not 
every generation has had such profound and cataclysmic technological changes, I think, in such a short amount of time that do in fact correspond you know, somewhat roughly to these, to these generational distinctions. And what we really want to talk about is the breakdown of trust, the breakdown of generational trust between grandparents and parents and, and kids, what's caused that. And we assume, I would assume, that we are as responsible for that as anyone else. And in many cases, I think it's unintended consequences of, of the technologies that we have. So, um, Christine, you've talked about the technocratic age. So I've been a long time, I don't know if you know, I'm a long time reader of uh, The New Atlantis, which is a terrific publication. And so say a little bit about that, because this is a sort of term of art that people in DC use, but what, what does technocracy refer to? Well, the idea is that, um, you know, previous eras have all had technological challenges and concerns. I mean, you think about what was written when the railroads uh, sort of started to become more widespread. There were all these fears that getting on a train and going too fast was going to create nervous energy that would make people ill. And, you know, we've had, we've had all kinds of so-called moral panics about new technologies. It's part of the process of adjusting to these new powerful tools. Um, and of course, there have always been people who were holdouts against technological change, right. you know, the Luddites most yeah. uh, infamously. I think what, what the technocratic age is uh, meant to capture is the idea that it's not just that we are culturally and socially trying to adjust to the use of new tools. It's that our politics, our civics, um, and our personal relationships are all now implicated in the use of these technologies, even if we individually choose not to participate in the platforms that they promote. Mm. And by that I mean you, our politics has been thoroughly suffused with the, with the ethos of social media in recent years. Uh, even if you're not on social media, that affects you as a citizen. So there's really no opting out, as, as uh, you know, we like to think about it. Um, we're all in. So if we have concerns about how uh, things are changing, particularly, as you say, uh, in trust in institutions, um, family structure, uh, social cohesion, even if you opt out, even if you raise your kids to opt out, this is still a challenge for every American. So when we talk about a technocratic age, that's, that's sort of broadly what, what I was thinking about. Yeah, and it's both, it's both a social and a political and an economic and a technological phenomenon. So it's, yep. yeah, it's so broad that it's, it's like the word culture, right? It's almost impossible to define. But Yuval, you've talked about uh, the role of these things, and in particular the kind of breakdown of the, uh, the earlier traditional distinction between the public and private realm, between the public and private spheres or institutions. In particular, we think of the family as the kind of quintessential uh, private institution. Say a little bit about that. Well, you know, there's a way that the particular technologies that we now are learning to live with break down all kinds of barriers, not only between private and public, but also between action and expression um, in ways that create confusion within institutions. Institutions are usually f f frameworks for common action that have some hierarchical character. Uh, or at the very least, they give people a role in relation to other people in pursuit of a common goal. And the way in which social media tends to pull individuals out of their place in those larger structures, put them on their own, kind of performing on a stage for mm -hmm. an audience, um, creates all kinds of institutional confusions that make it very difficult for people really to know how to behave, right? When you're, when you're online, are you in a public or in a private sphere? Mm -hmm. It's actually not really easy to say. Mm. Um, and what you find is a lot of people behaving in public in a way that could only be appropriate, if that, in private. 
Um, and you, you often, you sort of ask yourself, Interns how note this point. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. And you know what? One of the common reactions we might have when something like this happens is, how could that person behave that way in that, you know, uh, don't they know I can see them? Yeah. And the answer is not quite, mm -hmm. right? Because the sense they have is that what they're doing is for a kind of circle of followers that they have in mind, or maybe that they have online. But in fact, they're in a public space, and social media in particular have confused some distinctions between private and public. And those distinctions often have to do with formalities, right? In public, there are ways of behaving that come attached to whatever role you might have in some set of institutions. You're an adult, you're a parent, you're, you're, you're the president here, and so you have to behave in a certain way, knowing the people are watching you. Uh, and that, that knowledge, that sense that you have a role to play can be constraining in a useful way. But on social media, it's not clear what role you're supposed to have, what your relations are to other people. And so you're just another person out there performing in the big circus. And at the very least, we have not yet figured out how to live with this. I don't think it's impossible that no. we will ever figure out how to live with this. But some of the problems we face now have to do with mediating our social lives through a new set of institutions that we just don't know where to put in our mental vocabulary. And so a lot of people are behaving in very odd ways. You have a really great contrast that sort of thread through the book, his, his book, uh, Time to Build, uh, in which you talk about institutions when they're doing their job form us, they mold us, they shape us, whereas social media, in contrast, is we perform. So there's a forming function for institutions and a performance function for social media. Say a bit about the forming You part. know, f formation is one of the things that, that functional institutions do for us. They shape us into a particular kind of person. There is such a person in the world as a mother or uh, you know, a, a doctor. Um, and the reason there is such a person is that the institution of the family or the institutions of a profession tend to form us in relation to certain responsibilities we have, to certain obligations, to certain privileges we have. And as a result, we become a kind of person that's shaped by an institution. A, a lot of the loss of trust in institutions that we see now in American life has to do, I think, with the sense that some of these institutions have transformed from being formative in that way to being performative, to being just stages that individuals use to elevate themselves, to build a following, to build their own brand. Think about a member of Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a member, there is such a thing in the world as a member of Congress. It's a recognizable human type. Uh, <laughs> But a member of Congress who's shaped by the institution to think in certain ways, to approach his or her work in certain ways. In the 21st century, a lot of members of Congress think of themselves fundamentally as performers in a kind of cultural theater. If you attend a congressional hearing now, you're watching a bunch of people make YouTube clips to mm -hmm. use later. Yeah. Um, you're not really watching people engage with one another in a process of bargaining. You're not watching them engage with a witness. Um, and that, that transformation, which you see in a lot of our institutions, it's, it's going on in universities, it's happening in corporations, where an institution transforms from a kind of mold of character into a platform for performance, has a lot to do with the public's loss of trust in these institutions. And that, in turn, I think has a lot to do with, with social media, with a sense that you're not inside the institution, you're on it, mm -hmm. performing for an audience. And that encourages a very different kind of behavior. Oh, Bryce, so if I so your chaplaincy at University of Louisiana uh, 
Lafayette. So is it 2000 to 2010? 2010 to 2021. Okay, 2010 to 2021. So this would have been a very interesting time. So it would have been after the uh, advent of the smartphone, but just a few years, uh, iPhone started. In fact, I think 15 years this week mm -hmm. uh, was the release of the iPhone. So that's how recent this stuff is. But um, give us a sense of your observations of college students in Louisiana over that time period. Yes, I was there for 11 years. And then looking back, I was there for the end of the millennials mm -hmm. and the beginner, beginning of Generation Z. Yep. And then after I left, and now I'm, I'm working for the biggest institution in the world, <laughs> which hopefully we are not performative, at least not too much. Uh, but I saw a shift, a change. And, and I think I agree, the first group, they didn't know social media growing up. They didn't know iPhones. But towards the end, that's all they knew. And yeah, I, I agree that there was this desire to perform. There was a desire to be seen. This is my identity. This is who I am. But my work, even though I've read a, a bit about it, was more on the individual level, that if you got behind the image they put forth, that they were really individuals who were very frightened to be seen, mm -hmm. to be really seen for who they are. Uh, and that became a real challenge. The first generation, no problem at all. You could relate to them. There weren't walls up in the same way that I saw in the later generations where, yes, this is who I am, they perform. I'm not saying everybody, but once you're able to get beyond that and actually encounter them as an individual, uh, so impressed with the capacity, the knowledge, the talent that this generation has. Uh, so there is a desire to really be seen as an individual for who they are, uh, cast away the shame, cast away the insecurities. Uh, and I think that's something, at least from my perspective, as much as we may have policy change, mm -hmm. the way that we're going to do that is being able to have those individual encounters, that accompaniment that helps to draw forth a generation that is raised on social media mm -hmm. so they can actually be seen for who they are, not for that that mask that they often put forth, uh, or that we all often put forth yeah. on social media. Well, and we do, and we all, of course, I mean, this is a, it's a per perennial problem, but it, it occurs to me, it occurred to me with my children, is that what Facebook in particular, which I know is an old-timey thing, and none of the interns are on <laughs> Facebook, but it was a transition technology. But for me, Facebook meant I didn't encounter it until I was a complete adult, right? Brain had mostly formed, I think. So Facebook, for me, is a way to stay in touch with distant friends, and people that maybe I went to high school or to college with that I'd lost touch with. So it was an additional social layer. And I actually considered that a benefit, right? And it didn't have these kinds of costs. But if you were raised on highly interactive social media, I mean, I'm thinking of TikTok in particular, which you absolutely should get off your phones. Uh, but that's a different thing. It means something and is something different to you if you experience it at a moment of formation. Whereas in my case, and many, I think, Gen Xers, we've uh, we had to adopt these things. We, none of us are digital natives in that sense. And so do you think that that's actually changed human relationships, say, from between these generations based on when a person sort of experienced these technologies for the first time? Certainly. I've seen so that it's the case that the screen mediates mm -hmm. our encounter with reality, but it also leads us to have mediated relationships in so many different ways, particularly when it comes to face-to-face -face conversations. Uh, however, though, I, I was sitting with uh, one of the Generation Z the other day, and they were, we were talking about different articles that they've been reading. Well, they're getting them all on TikTok. So just as Facebook evolved, 
Instagram evolves, TikTok evolves, uh, and within just two years, yeah. I had no idea that people were getting their news from TikTok. Uh, but yeah, so I think there's a difference in how people relate, but once you can get past that and encounter the person and the individual, you break down the walls, it's the same thing as we would have been talking about uh, in the commons area of high school back in, in the 80s. Yeah, and that's important that human nature is perennial. That stays the it's same. still the same. Yeah. You know, Jay, you raise a very interesting point in the question, too, which is I think there, there, there's a way of thinking about technology in terms of how is it going to change the circumstances in which I live. Mm -hmm. So that's how an adult thinks about a new technology. What could this allow me to do? I think of this as something like a, the, the, the way that, that liberals and libertarians tend to think about technology as something that will happen to existing free-choosing adults. Right. There's another way of thinking about technology that asks the question, what kind of world will this create as a place to be born into and formed in and shaped by? Mm. And people who think about culture, and cultural conservatives in particular, who think about culture as performing that perennial task of taking the human person who always enters the world as the same kind of thing, and shaping that person into someone capable of living in a free society, that means thinking about technology as culture shaping. Mm. Thinking precisely about how it's going to affect the lives of people who know only the world shaped by this thing. And that's a very different way of thinking about what kind of challenge a new technology poses or what kind of advantage and benefit a new technology might offer, is how will it shape the world as a place in which the rising generation will be born. I think there was not nearly enough thought as, as social media was beginning to take shape in the course of the last 20 years to that question, to the question of what will this be like as, a, as the only place you've ever known? If the only way you've really known to communicate with your own fellow middle school students is, is to do it through TikTok, that's a very different place in some significant ways. Not fundamentally different, right? Middle schoolers are middle schoolers. They've always been a mess. There's never been, you know, just a great socially adjusted middle school. <laughs> but when we think about the kind, the ways in which their, their social interactions, their formation ultimately will be shaped by new technologies, there's no way that parents would have, uh, would have allowed middle schoolers onto social media to begin with if our society had thought about it in those terms. And now they're on, and we've got to think about where we go from here. But thinking about technology in terms of how it shapes a rising generation, I think, is a very important piece of how we have to ask ourselves how the world is changing. And, and to add to that, because it's a really important point, we have ways of doing this, and we've done it in other realms with, with very tricky ethical and moral questions. I, you think of bioethics, right? And you think of any of the discussions around genetic manipulation. There is an idea of giving children an, an open future meaning you don't, as a parent, get to manipulate the genome and choose what you want this child, expect and want and need this child's future to be. You give them an open future. And there's a sense in which uh, the use of social media platforms, in particular at very young ages, is closing off aspects of an open future for, whole, for several generations of children. There's, there's got to be a discussion about new rights to things like mental privacy because of the data exhaust we all give off every day that can be captured, that can, can talk that can show people who we might not give consent to know this our emotional state on a moment-by-moment -moment mm. basis which can be auctioned off to advertisers on these social media platforms so it's I, i'm not trying to sound alarmist and dystopian that's just descriptive yeah. but there's a way to talk about these from an ethical and moral standpoint that i think we have done in other fields that we that we're long overdue for doing with some of these personal technologies christina so you have had a piece way back in 2004 uh in the new atlantis yeah <laughs> uh, when you're an intern high school intern somewhere <laughs> 
there, right? But uh, talking about cell phones. So for those of you that maybe were not adults in 2004, I think I had a Razor, a Razor, that's a type of Motorola phone in 2004. And the texting, you had three letters per number. I mean, it was very primitive. And I was not worried about cell phones in 2004, but you already sort of saw it. So what was worrying you? So this, again, this is before smartphones. Uh, before the tracking map apps and things existed. What were you worried about? Well, the concern at that time was the um, how mobility and the power the cell phone gave people, particularly in public space. I was really worried about social spaces, and it, it, it was, and this is all we Gen Xers had this experience, right? It was jarring to be in a social setting and have someone just go with their phone. And you're standing there, you're like, I'm right here, we were having a conversation, and they're they're looking. They're spending 10 minutes sending a hi mom text yeah. by finding the right buttons yeah. on their razor phone. Yeah. Um, but it was sort of a shock. It was a cultural shock to see that people could tune out when they were standing right with you. And I know all of y'all are laughing because, like, we, you do that constantly, right? Everybody does that constantly. We've the norms have changed. But I felt, in in terms of thinking about personhood and how people develop a sense of themselves and a sense of their obligation in social space, I already had. I had seen some disturbing things, and you started to see it was the early generation of people starting to put up signs like, please don't use your cell phone here. So it became, if there wasn't a sign, you could use your cell phone. So you'd see very rude people like checking out at the grocery store, like, you know, looking at their phones, and the very nice, you know, cashier saying, can, can you, you know, here's, here's what you owe. And yeah. just all those incremental changes happened very quickly, and again, without a lot of thought about how that changed us. As, as people and how we treated each other and dignity and respect and a lot of things that, that we now are concerned about when we're on our online selves, um, it, you could start to see that then. So that was sort of the impetus. It's basically me being horrified by how everyone was behaving in public and wondering, why are we acting like this? Because these were nice people. These are yeah. people, it, but it, there was something about the power of that technology that changed their behavior in a way that was, was dramatic and, and that rapidly uh, kind of inundated the culture. And this was before, again, we had streaming video. So I, feel, I think it was, a, maybe it, was, it was after that that we really had high-def good video online. The streaming video was still to come. The smartphone was still to come. The, the kind of amazing app store was still to come. All amazing things, all of which I, I think your critique still holds. I mean, you were actually talking about a very primitive version of the technology that was still to come. Father Bryce, you mentioned a, a book by Peter Davis to me uh, called Dedicated. You said he writes about how we live in what he calls an infinite browsing mode and calls for us to live dedicated lives rooted in the present. What, what's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about uh, the fact that technology in general, um, but particularly social media, is sort of this expression of liquid modernity, where we're always moving from one thing to another, things are changing the way we receive reality, uh, and as a result, we don't really know who we are as individuals. And so he calls for this long-haul heroism, this mm. being rooted in the present moment, uh, in relationships, in you know, things that take time, that put us in touch with reality outside of the, the mediated reality. Uh, I found it very helpful in working with young people and now informing leaders for the church. I have the seminarians read this book, and we have some pretty good discussions about it, uh, about how technology changes our relationships, but our whole way of interacting with the world. Um, but for that book, one of the things that he keeps going back to is the importance of encountering reality, whether it be through gardening or through crafts, uh, but also in real relationships. 
and to go back to technology and some of the things that you were saying, or we were discussing, one of the things that I saw, and again, I'm sure there's studies about this, that social media has led for, let's say, the younger generation raised on it, a real peer attachment because communication is so easy. When we were in high school and you wanted to communicate with your friends, you had to get on your bike and you had to ride down the neighborhood and knock on the door to make sure they were home. It's like Stranger Things. Yeah, it is. Exactly, <laughs> that was our job. Exactly <laughs> like that. It, it yeah. really was. And I, I, we had the, the walkie-talkies. Yes, you could talk back and forth if you were, you were lucky. And what it did, it, it doesn't have the same space for the parental attachment mm -hmm. that, that we had. Yes. Granted, I didn't want to be attached to my parents when right. I was 13 or 14, <laughs> uh, but there was it's almost replaced it now where kids will look for answers that they may have gone to their parents for to the internet, to their friends, and probably not the best way to look for those answers and develop relationships. And I think that's where the real intergenerational trust breaks down. Um, I worked a lot, not only was I a campus ministry, but it was a parish. And so I had a lot of generation X parents and now millennial parents worried about the future. I said the most important thing you can do rather than regulating social media or the phone is build a relationship with your children. Uh, put your cell phone away. Mm -hmm. uh, and to be able to build up that trusting relationship where you're able to be vulnerable with them, they're vulnerable with you, uh, that produces the healthiest children. And so I got kids generally when they were 18 years old um, and they wanted those relationships. Uh, they wanted to build trusting relationships. Uh, and so I found the space to be able to do that. And so now, I'm almost 50, all of my friends, we hang out, we're all late 40s, early 50s, and then I have a bunch of young people who are in their 30s and 20s that I'm best friends with. Mm -hmm. uh, because now the ones that started at 18 and 2010 are now having families, and we get together, and I do consider them friends, uh, because they learn that connection uh, with the older generation. So let's talk some more about trust. That's actually the name of our panel, and we focused a lot on technology, but this relationship that, Father Bryce, you mentioned, so the, the relationship between parents and kids, or parents and teenagers, and this different relationship of teens and kids to each other, that peer relationship, because I do think that's a, that's a crucial shift. I mean, look, every generation has been frustrated that their kids picked up things from other kids, but the, the ability to tap in to say that the most eccentric possible thing, right, that if you're in a small town, um, you're not going to meet other people that think that they're unicorns, for instance, right? There's usually not more than one person like that in any town. Uh, the internet gives you access to billions of people, and it creates all of these, uh, these peer groups that can seem quite intense for kids. Uh, I think you all know the issue I'm working on at Heritage, and we're focused a lot on in the DeVos Center is the proliferation of gender ideology, this rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is almost always transmitted by social media, uh, in which a young girl who may have an intact family, may have a mother and a father in the home, may have happy relationships, but uh, she's also the awkward kid in school and doesn't really fit in, and she finds a community online of people that will tell her, you, oh, you're born in the wrong body, and in fact, there's a, there's a pathway to solve this. I mean, what do you do as a parent in a situation like that? I'm not a parent. You tell us as a priest, and then I, there's, we have one. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, wait, yes, yeah. exactly. Well, what the thing is, is I think it's, of course, you have to monitor what's going on, but what are we, what's the core issue here? It's a searching for identity. Mm. Who am I? And we, we want to be seen. We want to belong. 
And so, yeah, you're right. The awkward kid may have hung around the other awkward kids on Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. But now they're introduced to not only other individuals, often adults, right. often predators, and ideologies that they're not ready to really discern. But if you as a parent have built up a relationship with trust leading up to that, then if there are some insecurities, that they're going to be more likely, I find, to go to you rather than to buy into a lot of these false identities uh, and false notions of gender and the body online. Christine, you've got teenagers, right? Yes. Um, well, I would say one thing parents uh, can do is, is start measuring the opportunity costs of, being, having, of their kids being online and explaining those to their kids. And by that I mean, if you're confused about something and you, it's much easier to just you know, go to Wikipedia and look up something or go you know, find a TikTok video about it. Um, and you'd be surprised how many young people get, it's not just news, I was talking to a young woman uh, the other day whose younger sister, so this is someone who's in like upper elementary school, was now de had decided she never wanted to be a mother because she'd been watching all these TikTok videos about you know, the extreme horrors of pregnancy and all the things that could go wrong. And she was terrified at the idea that one day she might die if she tried to have a kid. This was all being funneled. Obviously, the algorithm was, was just sending her down a, a rabbit hole of like in really kind of hyperbolic nonsense. But that, she wasn't talking to anyone else about it. So then she called her older sister, and the older sister's like, that's nuts. Let's, let, here, here's some medical stuff you can read. Here's some statistics. But the opportunity cost is, is um, the thing that kids can understand. It's like, go play with your friends. Like, get off the computer, go play with your friends. That's, setting those habits at a young age is important. But the other thing is that the communities they find are real. They feel they are members of a community. It helps them form identity. The problem is that there's no barrier to entry for any of these communities, and there's no responsibility on the part of the individuals who join them, right? So when you're part of a community, you have a lot of uh, benefits of community, but you also have responsibilities to that community. These communities can encourage uh, children to do things that then when the child is in true crisis, they're not going to be there. They cannot physically show up and help these kids. And helping kids understand that in terms of how what the online world is and the non-online world is really a challenge because they spend so much time in the non in the virtual world. And we don't even, I mean, when we started the New Atlantis, it was very clear we'd have these arguments with usually libertarians about the virtual world, the real world and the online world. And they're like, no, it's all real. Yes, it's all real, but oh, there's this real distinction that you cannot say that anymore. It's really not true. So especially when children are young, teaching them that there are consequences in both of these realms and also the opportunity costs when they spend time in one world versus the other. So I've got a speculative question, but I'm just, and any of you can respond to this, but my sense, and I've got a colleague here at Heritage, that we have this sense, it's just an intuition at the moment, that uh, spending years and years in a virtual world in which you can have separate avatars actually helps create the conditions for kids to believe they could be born in the wrong body. Which in a sense, I mean, it's an unintelligible claim, but it's something like if you, if you think you're in the matrix, suddenly it seems possible. I mean, do you think there's something to that, that the actual medium, right, um, is, is the message in, in that sense? The disembodied realm. Absolutely, I think that's the case. I don't think, if it, I don't see, I think if we saw this as what we see today and the, the, the gender dysphoria and the way it spread is almost a social contagion, 20 years ago, the ideas might have been there. Not only could they not be communicated, but you spend so much time in this disembodied realm mm -hmm. encountering ideas, images, rather than real people, it's very easy for that, that disconnect to be internalized. 
I can't explain psychologically how that's yeah. the case, but I certainly believe I think there's it. always a way that our technologies create metaphors that we apply to ourselves. And so if you look at a lot of the way that the culture of mid-century America thought about the human mind, a lot of it looks like a kind of uh, a telephone network, right? And you, and you sort of move the wires around. And in a way, we still think that way about the human mind because we had several generations of, of working with that metaphor. And of course, that metaphor is also profoundly wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and every new technology we sort of imagine as creating a new vision of how the world actually works that we apply first and foremost to ourselves, and especially to the relationship between the mind and the body. And, you know, which is a complicated relationship to understand. And we're always, as people living in the modern world, looking for ways to think of the mind and the body as separate. That's just a kind of inherent thing about the way that modern science leads us to think. I, th I think that that desire is misguided. The mind and the body are not actually separate. Um, and it's, it's fairly easy to show that. But the desire to find metaphors of that kind of separateness is always there. And I think that there are definitely ways that, that you know, contemporary digital technology gives us all kinds of ways to think that we are not our bodies and therefore bodies are open to the will just like anything else is. And as you say, it, 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 just, it shapes how you think about everything because it acts as a medium. It mediates between you and the real world. And so inherently it mediates between you and your sense of self too. So I, I think the first order of business is for us to get clear as a culture in terms of how we think about these things and then to adapt to it insofar as we can. But perhaps there's, I mean, we're here at the Heritage Foundation. We're half a mile from uh, the Capitol. And so we should say something about potential policy responses. And I, and I don't have really strong intuitions on this. I have a sense there's probably a bunch of dumb stuff we could do and a few good things. But I mean, is there, is there some partial policy? There's always dumb stuff to yeah, do, right? But that's easy, I, yeah. I, I, I actually think, and maybe this is dumb stuff, but I actually think that there is very strong reason to push for age limits on access to social media, mm -hmm. and that that's not dumb, and it's not, it's not, it, it wouldn't be that hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in a way, we've talked ourselves into thinking that the tech questions are really complicated, and uh, many of them are. But the question of whether children should be in the world created by TikTok is not that complicated. The answer to that question is no. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there is a place for public policy to help us advance the future. There is technically already an age limit. Um, it, it's not enforced very well. And look, if you put that limit at 16 or 18, it wouldn't be enforced very well either. But it would let parents say to their teenage kids, the, the law says you can't be on Instagram. I'm sorry. And right now, the only thing they can say to their kids is, I don't really want you to do what all your friends are doing. I'm sorry. And that's not a very strong and durable argument with a teenager. Well, and the the, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which was set, what set the limit uh, as 13, yeah. it's pretty arbitrary. That was a result of negotiation because originally more people wanted 16. Um, in other countries in Europe, it is higher. It's 16 and whatnot. But that was originally established to protect children from advertising. So we need a, a sense of understanding consumer product safety when the consumer is the product. And we are the product on social media. And these were platforms designed for adults, not for children. And um, I, I totally agree that there'll be the, the arguments you hear, particularly from lovely libertarian friends of mine, is, oh, well, they'll just, they'll just go around the limit anyway. They'll find ways to hack in. There'll be new platforms. How do you manage all this? Yuval is right. It sends a cultural message, just like we do with alcohol consumption, cigarette smoking, automobile licensing. We say, look, you know, 
there's probably a really responsible 14-year-old on a farm who can drive a truck better than any, I'm sorry, Maryland driver yeah, in this area. For sure. Uh, <laughs> for I'm sure. a DC resident, yeah. so I have this Maryland driver issue. Um, but that doesn't mean it's what we should do for everyone, right? Yeah. So we set a limit. The states have licensing requirements. You have to meet them. And your parents are then involved in that process, right? You got, they got to go with you to the DMV and, and fill out all this paperwork. There's no reason we shouldn't do that. And we can, we can uh, there are two other things to say about age limits with social media. One is that we've tried it without. Mm. And most people are really concerned about what it's done to us. So we, we have some experience. The other thing is we really only have partial information about the worst that's been done because these companies don't share their data. They know what it does and they're not telling us. So if I think the burden should be shifted to the companies to prove their product is safe for kids use if they want to keep kids on those platforms. I think it's safe to assume that if the data showed that Instagram was great for teenage girls, we, Facebook would have let us we know We would that. know all there about we that. We need a whistleblower, right? Twitter would be, yeah, it would be trending on Twitter, right? They'd be <laughs> boosting it. I mean, and this is the kind of classic conservative response to the libertarian objections uh, to certain kinds of laws, but the law does have a teaching function. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen this recent poll that the uh, public opinion on the morality of abortion changed almost immediately after the Dobbs decision, which is what you'd expect, that the, the law in part enforces what we think ought to happen. It also teaches us something about the kind of moral structure of the world. And parents being able to say that to kids could actually really be something. We're talking a lot about social media and technology, but I think we also, when it comes to policy, and I'm not a policy person, we haven't talked about internet pornography, mm -hmm. um, which we know is addictive, yeah. and we know the average age both young men and women are introduced to it is at 11 years old. Um, I saw the increase of the effect of pornography during my years, particularly amongst young women, mm -hmm. and the way that, that it changed the ideas of sex, the ideas of what a relationship was. Most young people, their first sexual experience is through not the pornography we may have encountered as Generation Xers, but we're talking stuff that you can't even imagine. Uh, that's there on social media. That there is on the internet and has, I think, really been the big thing that's changed a generation uh, and filled people with a lot of shame and that desire to hide and not step forth to really reveal who they are because they're ashamed of the stuff they're seeing and how it's changed them. That's a whole different discussion. It but is, it's a but very it's absolutely part. crucial. And then, again, just the, the gender, uh, ideology. I mean, you cannot imagine how many girls, as a pathway, uh, they get there initially from exposure to extreme violent pornography uh, in which they see women being degraded online over and over again. And then, well, guess what? Maybe if they're just starting to go through puberty, they may not suddenly decide they're a boy, but they can certainly decide, well, I don't, if that's what a woman is, I don't want to be a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I'm convinced that what porn does to the male brain and the female brain are both destructive, but also different. And so that's a, definitely, I mean, maybe we'll have a future conversation <laughs> just about that, actually. Well, we've got a few minutes, so let's take some time for questions. And so I think we're going to do both online questions uh, and in person if we have a mic. So let's, the uh, first question we'll take will be here. So just raise your hand and wait for the microphone now. So yes, right here. Hi, 
Okay, so if y'all didn't hear that, because I'm not sure the mic is working, but um, for a 21-year-old, is there, is there still hope for a positive relationship with social media, or should you purge it and go to a monastery? Oh, I, think, <laughs> I, think there, I think there's great hope, because let's say there's a young person who grows up with that experience of the virtual world and relationships, but then what we saw on a college campus creating genuine community. Once they taste that, the, the real hamburger yeah. is as opposed to the fake, you know, hamburger made out of plants or whatever. <laughs> they want the real thing. And so I've seen tremendous communities that, that have grown up the desire to connect, whether it be through board games, conversations, uh, different events, tailgating. Once young people experience that, I don't think they want to go back to the, the, the mm. fake world. So we have to, I think, as Generation Xers or as Boomers, try to create those spaces where they can experience that. And I think college campuses are ideal for that. There's, there's also, I think, uh, when you make that choice at the age of 21, you should make it knowing you're actually simplifying your life in a lot of ways, the decision fatigue that comes from constantly having to be on social media and the tyranny of choice. I sound like an economist, God help <laughs> me. Um, I am not an economist. But this, it actually can clear up a lot of mental space and so the fear of missing something important that might be happening on social media, especially at 21, it's very different if you're 13, um, but at 21, you're right, you have more real life community, you're starting to think to the next stage of life. Um, it is a more healthy way to interact uh, with the world. Doesn't mean you have to be completely off of it, but it will actually free up um, your decision-making capability because you're not constantly making those little decisions every, I mean, it's a huge time suck. It just is for I would, people. I would just add, first of all, I think you, could consider getting completely off of it. That's not a bad idea. But I also think that there's a way that the fact that you're asking the question is a sign that you could use it constructively because you understand how it can be destructive and are conscious about how you want to spend your time, how do you want to engage with other people. I think one of the things we've learned from the, from the COVID pandemic has to do with this idea of the difference between engaging with other people personally and engaging with other people digitally. That there is, in what we think of as human interaction, there's certainly an element of just communication, just exchanging information, that's important. But there's also an element of communion, of just being together, that is very, very significant for what we can make of human interaction. And social media totally deforms that element of things. Can give you the wrong sense of what it is, can deny it to you altogether. And in a sense, what's missing when we allow our social lives to be mediated by social media is that element of communion that is just so important about being in real human communities. And so I think if you're aware of that, if you see that, there, there are advantages to social media. There are great uses for it. But you've got to be very, very conscious about how much of your time you're giving over to it and in place of what. What is it that's lost? What would you be doing otherwise? And oftentimes that is the kind of real communion with other people that's so important to, to, to shaping us. Do we have any on, uh, online questions? Okay, so, Jared, so I, I wanted to make sure we're, we are actually receiving them. Okay, so that's good on a cell phone. So on this, um, we have one, one question, uh, and it'd be great to hear your thoughts unpacking more of the positive impacts of, of social media like you're talking about. How, how does um, the fact that there are potential positive benefits, um, you know, how do we square that and how do we order civil society um, in a way that reconciles both you know, and can manage both the good and the bad and create that space? Everybody's looking at me. Y'all are the it's like a grenade on the. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think on you that. see it. You see it as a tool rather than 
an altered reality. Um, I communicating with young people without texting, without social media, it was really difficult. We had to call everybody up. Now, whether it be an idea or an event, you can communicate on social media, and then people show up in real life. I'm not saying you only use it for that, but to ask yourself, what am I doing with this? What am I trying to communicate? Uh, particularly if it's communicating information that ends up with action in the real world. I find that to be the best use that I can, I can see. I couldn't live without it. Uh, I think to think of it that way as, as a supplement, not a substitute for mm -hmm. social life, uh, it, it can be an enormously powerful supplement. It, it does help you connect with people. The question is, does it shape the way you understand what it is to connect with people? And that's why I think it's particularly important to think about its effect on younger people who are being shaped by it. Whether we like it or not, our culture forms us, and so we have to think about how. And, and to be the Luddite on the panel, which I always love to be, um, think about the social media platforms you choose to use, because they are designed to actually exacerbate not always the better angels of our nature. Um, engagement is the only thing that matters. What gets you most engaged? Fear and anger. Always. That's going to be better than the, you know, happy puppy videos are all well and good, but getting really annoyed with someone that enough that you start, you know, tweeting in reply or whatever, uh, that's actually what these platforms are designed to do because that keeps you on them. Also uh, realizing that it's not the real world. I mean, it's very, in Washington media culture in particular, the idea that Twitter represents anything other than an extremely small minority of angry people with too much time on their hands and a lot of privilege is, is you know, taken for granted outside of the Beltway, but is, drives policymaking here, and that's horrifying. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, this is the sort of dilemma is that, I mean, I must confess, I find this indispensable for doing my job. And in fact, I actually, I generally benefit from Twitter, but it's because I've highly curated it and decided so that, you know, you can discover things 25 minutes before a news source has it. This is the, this is the problem is we've got it. We've got to figure out how, how best to live with it. Catherine, another question? Uh, who has the microphone? Um, right here. Hello. Uh, J.P. Hogan, a writer, citizen, Rosebud. Um, you've left something out in the intergenerational. We've had counterculture that you aren't talking about, the Harry Potter books, seven years of things. That is counterculture to this tech that happened, wanting people to have it to rival religion. Harry Potter sits aside. It's something that came out as counterculture but isn't spoken about as that. So for the intergenerational you have something that was seven books, not seven seconds. So I was just wondering how you would relate speaking to Harry Potter as, as something that happened counter to all these tech companies counter wanting to, to... Counter to this trend. Right. Yeah, a long, fairly thick books that require attention span, which, I mean, they're sort of key scarcities, right, is time and attention. And they were also released at the latter part of the 90s yeah. and then finally ended before 2010 or right around 2010. So it really was before the social media age and the way it communicated. Uh, but hmm. I, I still think people yeah. like to read. Uh, they may read on e-books. Mm -hmm. um, they may prefer to watch Harry Potter rather than read Harry Potter. But there's still a lot of imagination out there that can certainly be engaged. And I think if we can encourage other generations to, to think about things, to the idea of myth, the idea of story, the idea of narrative is still very, very important. That's why people still go to the movies, and that's why we spend eight hours a day watching 
Stranger Things season four, you know. Binge when, watching it. No one does yeah, that. So, yeah. <laughs> but they, the thing is, is movies are out for the younger generations. It's these longer, sustained yeah. narratives. I can't, I can't sit and watch all of that. Uh, I, I want to watch my two-hour Top Gun. Yeah. Um, but so, the, yeah, the younger generation probably can sustain longer, complex narratives than we can. Mm. I think the great sign of hope, as long as cultures are telling stories, uh, granted, some stories are better than others, and people are engaged in that, I think it's fantastic. I do think there's something to be said for abstinence. And our first question was this sort of suggestion that maybe, I don't think, look, for most people, unless you have an addictive problem, that you simply need to get off all social media or technology. I do think there is something to be said for abstaining from these things periodically, just as there's something to be said for fasting from food at different times. The rest of your life is much better. And I've had the same experience where you maybe you go to a retreat, maybe you go to a monastery, maybe you just turn it all off. But I can tell if you do that for even three days, then when you turn it back on, you notice what it's doing to you much more acutely than you, you notice otherwise, unfortunately. So I think we have time maybe for one more question down front here. Yeah. Wait, wait for the mic. So we're seeing increasing evidence that the January 6th riot was orchestrated, planned in large part on social media, where the, but the average age of the January 6th rioters was between 40 and 50. We're also seeing evidence that groups like ISIS also recruit online, but the average age of someone charged with joining ISIS or doing something in connection with ISIS is approximately 26 to 28. It's easy to talk about social media as a generation, as an area where there are large generational gaps. How, how much should we be worried about social media's ability to foster political radicalization across age groups? Mm, that's a great question. So, you know, Christina excavated some of the archaeology of her earlier writing before. I, I, I'll do the same. I, I wrote a piece in 2002 when I was a graduate student uh, for the public interest called Politics After the Internet, which you can find online. It's embarrassing in many ways. It's an essay about the Internet written in 2002. So you can, but the, the core argument of it was that the Internet actually would be a powerful tool for radicalization because and, and it, 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 it sort of builds off of the core Madisonian argument of Federalist 10 that the size of our society constrains radicalism because it's not easy for people to gather with, with groups of like-minded radicals for, for views that are fundamentally fringe views in a large society so that the size and scope of American life would make it difficult for the extremes to come together. There's an obvious way in which not just social media but the internet in general makes it much easier for people to come together across distance and across difference. And the, the FBI has known from the, from the end of the 90s that the internet was going to be a very powerful tool for radical groups, uh, whether that's abroad, as you say, ISIS, and, and well before ISIS, uh, and whether it's at home. And I, I think it's absolutely the case that there are some advantages, some benefits that we get from being a large extended republic that are somewhat undone by the power of social media to, cons to, to constrict space, to shrink down those, those spaces that can moderate us, and, by the way, to accelerate things, too, to, to, to have politics move so much faster than it used to also creates a situation where it's harder to stop and think, it's harder for people to notice trouble before it becomes a big problem, and that's by no means just generational. That's not a young people problem. That is, a, uh, that is seeing t this technology as actually a new tool in the hands of people who before didn't have the power to act on what was already in some ways a, a, a dramatically sort of antisocial set of views. 
And now they do have a tool, and they do have the power. And for more than 20 years now, I think it's been pretty clear that that, that danger is very serious. And it's not just about younger people by any means. There, there's also, um, to speak to the point you made earlier about people trying to find an identity, and, and particularly at crucial moments of development when identity formation is happening, but for the older folks, it's been fascinating to see the radicalization of middle-aged people online. I mean, you should have, and, and it wasn't just January 6th, although there was a sort of cosplay element to that. And watching it on TV, and you're seeing people who find themselves in the rotunda having violated all kinds of federal laws and committed acts of violence, looking kind of like confused tourists, right? And like stealing, it was, it was surreal, right? It felt surreal as someone who watching it. Um, but there have been precursors where people have become so engaged in the world they live in online. I'm thinking of the Comet Pizza shooting here in D.C. This guy who truly believed he was on a mission to rescue children who were being sexually abused in the basement of a pizza parlor. Um, and when he was arrested later and he's interviewed, um, you know, and questioned, he said, wow, I just, I really thought I was saving kids. And he had driven here with this whole plan to save these children. And he's like, and he finally was like, I guess I just had bad information. But he seemed baffled by the fact that that world he'd been living in for months and months and months and that he'd been planning this, this you know, rescue mission and was all made up. It was not real. But it had been so real to him. And I, there is something, we've been talking a lot about the, the dangers for the generation raised on all this stuff. There's another danger for those of us who weren't raised with it, mm. which is distinguishing what is real from what is unreal. Um, and there's a whole lot of naivete and credulity among middle-aged folks about, uh, particularly with politics online in these discussions. But not just politics, in the church too. Uh, as a Catholic, with Catholic social media, we're seeing certain ideas, a radicalization of theology, of liturgy, uh, spread also because of this, um, which is causing problems in certain sectors. I think it's much smaller than, let's say, certain leaders in the church might think it is, uh, but still, it's very easy now for the older generation to become much more radicalized and to communicate ideas that really don't bring about union of the church or in culture. Well, that's a good, somewhat depressing way to end this, but I think actually <laughs> appropriate. So uh, thank you all, those of you that joined us online, and, and especially those of you in person. For those of you that are in person, we actually have sandwiches, and we can spend some time with the panel. But please join me in thanking our panel.